This is pretty much pop, a culture podcast, squanching around the universe for over 20 years, according to the memory soon to be implanted in your brain. Today we're talking about Rick and Morty, which started in 2013, that's a long time ago, and recently completed its fourth season. I'm Mark Linton-Meyer, or possibly a clone or alternate dimension version of myself. At this point, I've lost track. I'm Erica Spires, creator of Mrs. Poopy Butthole, to be seen in season five. And I'm Brian Hurt. And after reading the news lately, Cronenberg World is looking pretty good to me. This is our first uh, without a guest for a little while. This is nice. Yeah. No interlopers. <laughs> it's like family. But maybe uh, the guest, so many of our guests I really like, and I feel like they were here all along as a co-host. So should we use this time to instead talk about all the guests we don't like? Should we just dish on our guests? We didn't have them. <laughs> <laughs> Anything is possible in this world of Rickness and Mortydom. Let's have the host who just powered through all four seasons give a quick overview of Rick and Morty. So Rick and Morty is an animated series, each episode about 30 minutes long, 22 minutes without commercials. And it is by Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon. Justin Roiland voices the main two characters, Rick and Morty. One is the grandson, the other is the grandfather in a family, and it tells the story of their family, including Rick's daughter, Beth, her husband, Jerry, and their daughter that was born way too early and is the reason that they are married in the first place and have marital problems, named Summer. It takes on their adventures, the whole family's really, adventures through space and time and family matters. And it started as a Doc and Marty, Back to the Future, just little cartoons that Justin Roiland was doing and evolved to be a slightly different relationship, but it's still based in that. That was funny to find out. I was like, oh, oh, so Justin Roiland did bad voice over versions of Doc and Marty. And that's how Rick and Morty started. All right. What are our priors on this? Are we all coming in as super fans? If so, this is going to be a short and boring podcast. I loved it. But you had resisted it for a while. I've watched it not at the moment of its release, but as it's been coming out on Hulu and then did the upgrade. So I was able to see season four, even though it has not, uh, you know, it's still on the officially live TV thing. Yeah, I had resisted it. I tend to not love watching cartoons. I think a big reason for that is a lot of them just seem to use very much potty humor and that's funny a couple times and then I get tired of it. And so I think I was just assuming that there was going to be a lot of that. And there is, there is a fair amount, but in such a wonderful way, it progresses through the seasons where it harkens back to earlier episodes. It really is something with a long story arc rather than an episode by episode arc. And yes, it does get into a lot of talks about philosophy and science, but I don't feel like that's why it's necessarily good. I think it it is just, it's funny and it's inventive and they have done a great job with a character-driven story over the course of these four seasons. Brian? All right, I guess I'm going to have to pile on with what Erica said. I really enjoyed the show tremendously. I've been watching it since the beginning. I will admit I don't love what I see as the prevailing Rick and Morty fandom. I feel like there is kind of this culture around it that is a little irritating and weird. But separated from that, just as a consumer of it, I think it's really funny. And it's really good science fiction. 
And that is something that is to be treasured because we've seen a lot of things that over the years that should be or could be good science fiction that end up just failing. And for something to deliver on that front and also be funny or be emotional. And I guess the philosophy doesn't resonate so much with me as like family dynamics of fairly awful people, but they still have authentic relationships and we're rooting for them even though they're such flawed people. I've seen several of the seasons multiple times in part because as you said, Mark, it started in 2013. And is there no new Rick and Morty? All right, I guess I'll just go watch season two again, right? It's short enough and there's enough to get out of it that it's easy to consume, just sit down and just power through however many episodes, 10 episodes in a season. So we're two for two on this, Mark. Are you a fan? I am a fan and I've had an up and down relationship with adult animation. I really enjoyed when it came out, like Aqua Teen Hunger Force and some of those other adult swim things. You know, when I was college, immediately post-college, Space Ghost, Coast to Coast. But it kind of got a little tedious over time. I still watch South Park when it comes out, but I've long since abandoned The Simpsons. And when I try to watch a new thing like that, Bob's Burgers or something, I have kind of limited tolerance. Like, all right, I sort of enjoy this. They're usually short and easy to watch, and I'll power through a few. But, you know, I haven't gotten to the end of BoJack. I've never gotten into Archer more than a few episodes. You know, these things that objectively, according to Criterion that I had 15 years ago, I probably should like quite a lot. But this one I have just no problem with. And I have just gulped down every season as it has come out. Prepping for this is the first time I was trying to take it seriously as sci-fi, knowing that, Brian, you'd be looking at it that way and actually hearing that this is one of the things that they're trying to do. Because I've really just seen it as absurdist humor for the most part that draws on a fairly big vat of things to make fun of, including you know critical theory, stuff about capitalism subsuming everything, and you know, high concept sci-fi. So I I saw it less as this is a serious thing about the multiverse as this is making fun of multiverse things that have happened in other sci-fi properties. But once you start playing with these things, you know, the whole point, what makes humor interesting is it's taking a left turn. It's presenting something unexpected. And so inevitably you start actually exploring and doing variations off of these past themes as opposed to merely satirizing. One thing I wasn't expecting for the show to do is to have character arcs that actually mattered. And I think in season one, when I was first telling you guys, like, I think it's funny, but then I, then I feel guilty about laughing at some of it because it just, not even just because it's it, it's crass, like I can handle the crass, but like it felt very one-dimensional, especially for the female characters. And it's not that I don't think every TV show needs to be like, oh, we're going to feature everybody and give time to everybody. But I do think if you're going to have that family dynamic posed, it's just kind of boring just to watch the only people who have really agency to be the grandpa and the grandson. So I think that's why sometimes past a season or two, a lot of TV shows won't get to me. But they have created interesting carry arcs. It's like karaoke and story arc together. They have created interesting story arcs for all of the characters, really. And even a lot of the characters that we don't see fully all the time. I love that they have, for example, they brought in Mr. Poopy Butthole during an episode where they were exploring which characters were real and which were fantasy, right? That was the first time we saw Mr. Poopy Butthole. And the way that they finally figured out, spoiler, that certain people, because they had all these memories implanted of these 
beings of these aliens that they actually didn't know, but their memories were implanted as though they'd known these, these beings for like many, many years. And they realized if they only had positive memories, then that couldn't be a real being in their lives because they made each other so miserable that that was the only truth. So when they went to kill off Mr. Poopy Butthole, he didn't die, but he looked up at the end and said like, I'm sorry, you only have good memories of me. It was such a sweet and sad moment. And I still wondered if it was real or not, like if he was truly a real character. And now they brought him back for several other episodes in it. I think he's adorable and gross and all the good things that potty humor should bring. He just looks like a good and plenty, right? He, there's nothing actually poopy about his appearance. He's not... Well, we don't see the poopy appearance. We don't smell him through the television. We don't know. Right. Having story arcs and having consequences. And that's hearkening back to our... I, I listened to our sitcom episode not too long ago. And, and that's the sort of thing I know that Simpsons and Family Guy have both joked about whether things are always exactly the same at the end of an episode is when they started. And they gave us that in season one, right? With By the end with Morty looking at the grave in the backyard of another Morty from a, a parallel universe. And that was really set the tone and they stuck with that for season after season. And it makes storytelling harder, but more rewarding when you can do it well and in an authentic way. So they've been really true to what they set out to do, I think, in season one. But as you said, Erica, I think it's Beth, Jerry, and Summer. So the two female characters, but the three non-Rick and Morty characters of the family were not fully realized in a way that they are certainly now and in some ways might be even a little bit more interesting or more complex, I think. We're, we're just spoiling all four seasons, right? If anyone got this far, they've watched Rick and Morty. Oh, we didn't spoil it too terribly yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess if we can structure things so that we're still sort of talking in generalities, unless, as Erica said, there's a specific episode thing we want to spoil. But I think what you've said about the fact that there's character arcs, that's fine to know, to know that. I think Beth in particular in season four, she really comes into her own in a way that we've, I think her relationship with her husband is, Interesting, but her relationship with her father really is more her soul. You know, The Simpsons did that really well, right? Like, I haven't watched The Simpsons for years, but I mean, it's been on forever. So, of course, I no watched it for has. many years. No <laughs> right? But it's me. still going. But I think they did a really good job of striking that awesome balance between it's funny, but they're going to have some dramatic sweet moments and they actually take time to look at there are different episodes that actually focus on each of the family members and it makes for such a more interesting story overall for everybody all the ownness doesn't lie on rick and morty to have to have the exciting moments and the character arcs because there's only so much you can do with each character but you can do a lot more with family dynamics the family drama part has been the weakest part for me that it's the part that i enjoy least when I'm watching on a rewatch. I sort of suffer through it largely to get to the sci-fi and silliness. But what's your take? I don't think I have that beef with the show. I think you are just heartless cad, Mark. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> so in particular, most of that focuses on the marriage dynamics. And though they've done interesting things with it, so here I'm going to spoil the premise of one of the episodes I think was in the third season where they get to see a representation of Alien is created. This is not one I've rewatched recently. Uh, some being is created that is Jerry's version of Beth and then Beth's version of Jerry and then it actually cascades from there in silly ways. They've done interesting things with it and 
I think maybe it's just the Jerry character in general. Like there are limits to how much I enjoy him being portrayed as dumb, that he's in a simulation and he doesn't realize he's in a simulation and he just, the wind whistles by and calls him a loser and things. I don't know. That's not the part that I enjoy the most about the show. I think there are a lot of good jokes that come from their relationship, though, in general. Not not even just about Jerry, but about how she relies upon Jerry to be that person who's there for her when her dad never was. So that creates an interesting dynamic, I think. Also, there's just lots of great jokes about how how much of an idiot Jerry is. Not an idiot. It's not even that he's stupid. He's just like, he's, he's like willfully ignorant so frequently. And I think that's a good point to bring up because it so easily follows like what we see in society, right? There are people who go out and try to take life by the reins and learn as much as they can. And there are people who put their head in the sand. And so you as a watcher are constantly like, why is this happening? When is Jerry going to get better? Is he going to get better? Why is he here? And they have some redeeming moments for him, but then he keeps going back. He doesn't have a character arc where he's self-actualizing, really. He literally is put into Jerry daycare breaks out and realizes he can't survive on the outside and goes back into Jerry daycare, right? This is just full of Jerry's from different dimensions while Rick and Morty's from different dimensions are doing their things. They need to put him somewhere. And I feel like he has this everyman quality on the scale of being Rick and being Jerry. Most of us are probably closer to Jerry. I mean, it helps ground the show. And by making him so simpering, at least you feel like, well, I might be a little better than him. Yeah, I may be closer to him on the scale, but I'm above him on the scale. The show would have no basis in our world without him. I feel like Rick is just this otherworldly creature in his intelligence and his offspring and his two sidekicks are just not of our world in the way that that Jerry is. So I do appreciate him as a character and they're all really well acted. I feel like in some ways the two Justin Ryland characters maybe are the most caricature-ish, and I guess that's partly just how he's doing them. And Summer feels like she has the affectation of a teenager, right? But both parents, I feel like those are established actors who have done other things. Sarah, is it Chalk? Sarah Chalk. I don't know how to say her name, from Scrubs and from Chris Parnell from Saturday Night Live. You're making noises over there. Why are you unhappy, Erica? Are you not a Sarah Chalk fan? No, I love Sarah Chalk. I thought you were just making an enemy. I'm a big fan of uh, Scrubs also, which even though it's a live action has, I'd never thought of it, but it does have similar qualities to the fantastical world at times. And then coming back to have some really difficult moments to watch in it. I don't think you ever watch Rick and Morty and you're like crying or super sad for anybody, but there are definitely moments when I feel super terribly for Jerry and the way that he gets treated. But then I'm like, well, he kind of deserves it too. And you're right. I'm totally like, in the, even in like by season two, you feel so excited to watch Rick do anything because he is our superhero. And even when he dies, you know, he doesn't ever really die. So you just don't have the same stakes when you watch Rick. And it's easy to watch Rick and it's fun to watch Rick because he also doesn't really feel a lot of remorse or care about the consequences as much. I hadn't realized until hearing this interview that I'll link folks to with the creators how what a Doctor Who element was in here that Rick is sort of created as a, a Doctor Who type in some ways. Well, it's this idea in part. It's science fictional and its consequences, but not in its delivery. 
Right? Everything is, is trivial to do in a way that hard science fiction would find annoying. Space travel and time travel and parallel dimensions and the rest of it. And well, how are you doing it? Well, either you explain it in detail, which is fine, or you don't at all and you just take it for granted, which is what really Doctor Who does as well. And they only impose rules when the plot demands it. Oh, we can't do this because this is a fixed point in time, whatever, blah, blah. But it's like, really, come on. Because we're locked out of the TARDIS today. Right, because this actor is leaving the show, so we can't go ever visit this actor again. Like, it is a plot-driven time machine, right? And Rick and Morty does the same thing, but it, it takes the consequences very seriously. So as the probabilities start splintering the world, it follows rules, and you have to wind things backwards in order to join the worlds back together, even though the way it's happening is utterly ridiculous. So it's in that sense that I think it's really good science fiction, even though some people who, and especially hard science fiction fans, I think would be really irritated by it and just call it science fantasy. Yeah, I don't know about that Pickle Rick spoilers. <laughs> Killing rats to then use their limbs somehow to control by his pickle brain so that he can become a uh, super ninja person-killing pickle. Well, that just gets to what Erica was saying about him being a superhero. The only way that he can be put down is by doing it to himself, right? In order to be challenged, he has to make, well, to get out of going to family therapy, but to have a challenge, he has to make himself into a pickle and then somehow figure out how to undo that after his... How to get out of oh, the pickle? You, you did it. Good for you, Erica. <laughs> That's my favorite episode. There are a lot of good episodes, but that one to me was just so ridiculous. It went places I did not expect. It was hilarious. And then you find out in the end what he's really... I mean, actually, you really find out in the beginning that the reason that he turned himself into a pickle is because he doesn't want to go to family therapy. It's just so ridiculous and then so wonderfully executed. And I didn't know until I watched the video, Mark, that you sent us this video about the directors of Rick and Morty. I never really thought about what it entails for a director to direct animation. And I didn't realize that they are really the ones responsible for all the visual elements, like in storyboarding the very beginnings, and then it goes to other animators, right? I guess. I'm still a little unclear. We'll have to get an animation director on the show with us at some point. Does it seem like maybe this show, I mean, of course, a lot of the appeal is its animation style, but that it's almost, as, I was going to say 90% of the work is done in the writer's room. But of course, clearly that's not the right way to put it because this is another thing that came out of the interviews that they almost feel irresponsible as writers, that they're just coming up with these elaborate things in 30 seconds that then someone has to spend weeks actually realizing. So clearly there's a lot more manual labor and that's what gives it so much of its charm is is the visual just onslaught, that there's so many ideas put in per minute. But again, it's in the writer's room that so many ideas per minute get put in, that this really is, I think a lot of what we are praising about this is this combination of minds just coming up with these. I'm a little dumbfounded that this has been renewed for 69 more episodes, I heard quoted at me. I thought it was 70, but if, but if <laughs> you're saying 69, I say nice. Uh, that's just, a, it does not seem like an open-ended formula in some ways. I guess this was addressed in this story train episode in this last season of, is it really an open-ended formula? Because it seems if you're trying to, Brian, uh, you'd refer to it offline as the burden of genius, <laughs> that you're always trying to outdo yourself, always trying to present something that is just conceptually next level, that is there a point at which you just need to say, nope, this is the formula. There are going to be surprises still, but they're going to be not surprises of a fundamentally different type every season. 
Or if you trust your genius, do you say we can change it up in a way that makes it fundamentally different or maybe even unrecognizable, but still Rick and Morty and saying, well, this may not be exactly what you want, but this is what we're giving you. And it's better than us trying to rehash something. I mean, I I would be sort of surprised if we just had the same five core characters after 69 more episodes. Could still happen, but I'm willing to let these showrunners and writers and directors take it where they want. And if it's not exactly the same thing, that's okay. I'm not sure after 40 episodes we're exactly watching the same show that we are that we were at the beginning. It's certainly uh, about five people in a way that at the beginning it was more about two people. Mm-hmm. Mark, you shared with us also a podcast episode that I would direct the fans to if they're interested. The Writer's Panel podcast. Yes, that's what I was referring to as the little insight I have about where the writers were coming from. What was interesting about that, and I had read some article, I wish I could find it for you, Mark, but it was just like some random thing because I was I like to look up facts about shows while I'm watching the shows. I'm usually on IMDb or something else. But I had read something about how community was difficult because it began to get very fan servicey. And this somebody's opinion was that the later episodes weren't as good because they started to think about too much what the fans wanted rather than just doing what the show wanted. And it seemed when I was listening to this podcast, what their goal was with Rick and Morty is like Cartoon Network was kind of letting them do what they wanted to do a little bit more so than like NBC would. So the idea is to kind of lead with joy and to do what brings you joy rather than doing what you think the fans want and staying away from looking too much into fan theories and letting your mind one one riled. I'm nailing it today. Letting your mind run wild. And that's scary, right? Because I think as an artist, if you let your mind run wild, you know that some ideas are going to be great and some are probably going to be terrible. So we tend to think, oh, great. Well, then we'll just get a formula and we'll keep doing what we know and expand on that. But to Mark's point, Erica, about things coming at us quickly with Rick and Morty, you can have a, a slightly low hit rate when you're doing stuff on a micro level in an episode, so much coming at you. If one joke fails and one joke fails or one bit isn't working, you're on to the next one that maybe does. Now, across the season, yeah, there have been a couple episodes I haven't thought much about, but I haven't seen a bad season exactly. There have been a couple episodes that maybe weren't weren't great, but what if Rick and Morty had just a bomb of a season? I mean, Game of Thrones did, and we still continue to watch it. And, and maybe that's where fandom would carry it. Where Maybe. I don't know. I mean, they've gotten us this far. I just I think it, it is very scary as an artist to think about just doing what you want to do and not planning it based on a formula. And I really commend them for attempting to do that for so many years and it actually working. And of course, it won't always work, but I hope they continue to do it because I don't think a lot of people have the balls to do it. I think the fact that it's animation helps. Yeah. Community. We had... Actors who, you know, some were unhappy about how their characters were being portrayed. And famously, you know, Chevy Chase had that falling out. And others, their stars were rising. And Donald Glover's career was taking off in a way that it just didn't make sense for him to stay on that show. And I think with animation, you can paper over some of that and, you know, find time for these actors, even if they have other things going on. And it really is more the especially with Justin Roiland doing the two main voices. As long as he's still wanting to do this, I have a feeling that this show could keep going on in some fashion. Yes, I'm just thinking about the couple of ways that South Park dealt with that of having a fallen out with Isaac Hayes, the famous singer that they got in the early seasons to do the voice of Chef, and then they made fun of Scientology and he didn't like that. 
So they had a whole episode where they just used clips from previous episodes of his voice to make it sound like he had joined a cult of child molesters. (laughs) (laughs) Make love to the children and like, you know, put them together. So they obviously were put together and then just literally burned that character, making him into a Darth Vader sort of thing so that they could just never show that character again. And that definitely, it wasn't papered over in the way that one of the main female voice actors, I think, killed herself around season three or four or something like that. And they just replaced the voice and just never maybe de-emphasized some of those characters that she was doing. But yeah, I don't know if, you know, Chris Parnell doesn't want to do this anymore, what they're going to do. I think that's already happened with uh, Solar Opposites, the spinoff show. I saw that season two does not have the other main voice, the guy from Silicon Valley. Thomas Middleditch. Yes. There's nothing indicated in season one, you know, saying goodbye to that character at the end of the first season. And it seems like him and Justin Roiland are the central, you know, it's about their couple dynamics almost entirely. Thoughts on Solar Opposites? Can we take a a side journey on that? I'm just curious, have both of you watched all the way through? No, I wanted to, but we just finished Rick and Morty. Like, I, I thought that we only had three seasons to get through of Rick and Morty, but then I saw that the fourth one was out on our YouTube TV, so we just finished that. Have you seen any of it? No, no. I did at your recommendation, Brian, and though I did watch through the season, actually, I've been watching Rick and Morty with my son, and I showed him the first Solar Opposites, and he was very much not impressed. They're just taking the pieces apart, the royal and silliness versus the uh, Dan Harmon conceptual magic. You can kind of see Solar Opposites has some of that, Definitely interesting ideas about the children on the show having a terrarium of shrunken humans that then are living in this savage Lord of the Flies sort of situation. Definitely interesting ideas there, but not as consistently executed. Yeah, I agree. I I feel like Solar Opposites is withering in the shadow of Rick and Morty in a way that if it had just existed on its own, we would have a different opinion of it. But, well, who's to say if it would have gotten made, but it's we, we can't judge it without that context of knowing that it it exists. I like to think that maybe Solar Opposites is on TV in Rick and Morty's universe. And that's what passes for really good science fiction television. I don't know. And it's also just hearing the voices. It's it's hard. It reminds me so much of when American Dad came out. And it just, it was impossible to watch that show without constantly making comparisons to Family Guy, right? And I think it had a long life, but it still was this oddball thing that could never really stand on its own legs. Because it had to stand on the legs of Klaus the Fish, who was our guest on the show, Dee Bradley Baker. Oh, and Mark, I found that it actually was the Vice article I had sent along. The reference I made earlier, this is, is Rick and Morty as smart as fans think it is? And they asked a scientist, a philosopher, and a scriptwriter. Yeah, it's the wrong question. It's, are Rick and Morty fans as smart as they think they are? I mentioned that early on, the, my irritation with Rick and Morty fandom and this idea that you weren't getting it in the way that real or super fans are getting the show. And I think at some point we need to do an episode on fandom as a thing and gatekeeping and the rest of it because fandom is really weird. And the world we're living in now with so many niche properties out there, it's and in different ways of flexing your fandom, strange and sometimes irritating world we're living in. But I feel like I don't even know what it means exactly to be smart. I I think getting references helps you enjoy humor and jokes, but part of that's just being 
having knowledge of is, is knowing the same things that the writers know and like being aware of the same science fiction tropes and the same little bits of knowledge from physics class or astronomy or whatever. And is knowing what Pluto went through, does that make the Pluto episode more or less funny? Yeah, it probably makes it a little more funny knowing the Pluto debate. But is it necessary to really enjoy that episode? Yeah, I'm not going to judge someone else's enjoyment of a show based on the knowledge they came into it knowing. It's weird though, right? Because it's a comedy show. So I don't watch comedy so that I can feel smart and be like, oh, I learned something today. Or, oh, I, I read that reference in something else. So now I get it. That's not why I enjoy comedy. I think I enjoy comedy because something catches me off guard or surprises me in a particular way. And it produces a laugh or it makes me go, huh, oh, like it makes you think in a way that maybe other mediums can't because it's doing it with a joke. Comedy is certainly very sensitive to, I don't know if it's intelligence level, but just how much you've been exposed to and how jaded you are about other comedy. Because if something is just like ugh, this old sitcom kind of comedy or, you know, that I've seen so many times before, then I just think you're not going to get that much enjoyment out of it. And if it's, I'm not sure about that because where does absurdist humor, appreciation of absurdist humor lie in that? That it seems like only the most jaded people that like any sort of, you know, what defines a left turn, you know, the kind of thing that will actually be unexpected and make something funny. Absurdism by definition you could not have predicted. It is, you know, there's something truly random about it. And so in some ways that seems like that's for only the most sophisticated people. But really that's something that I had my fullest appreciation of when I was 19. You know, truly absurdist humor that there is something that when you truly democratize, you know, say all possibilities are are equal and the humor can go anywhere, then it's actually easier to do absurdist humor than other kinds of humor. In a way, I think you're right. But then we all love, Pratt falls, right? I guess I can't say everybody loves a Pratt fall, but why do we always laugh when we see people like we see a dad knock into a tree and or step on a, a rake, right? I'm thinking of two things that my dad literally did and we have on tape that are hilarious. And they're funny every time. And even now that we know that they're gonna happen on the old family videos, we are so excited to watch that again. So I guess surprise or it's funny because even now, like I know it's not a surprise, but it came from a surprising situation. You had one trajectory and then something changes that. And all of a sudden everything feels different. And it's just somebody falling down or getting hit in the head. You don't have to get absurdist humor to find things that are actually funny, funny. Like I don't know anybody who doesn't laugh at somebody falling down unexpectedly as long as that person doesn't get hurt. So are you a fan of America's Funniest Home Videos or does that violate, it is not unexpected because you know and they telegraph it with stupid cartoon noises. Yes, I think that that's got too much telegraphed. And also like the setup is just too much. But you know, classic comedy, like it was all about those setting things up and knocking things down over and over. And it was freaking funny. And of course there's more skill involved than just somebody falling down. It's knowing how to set up a joke. It's knowing your timing. In Stranger in a Strange Land, Valentine Michael Smith grows up on Mars. He's a human. And then he's exposed to human culture as an adult. And he's learning everything. And one of the things he learns is comedy. And it takes him a little while. And I know Data goes through this as an android, but Smith gets it in a flash when he sees, he's at a zoo and he sees one monkey beats up on a smaller monkey and then the smaller monkey beats up on a yet smaller monkey. And he re kind of realizes that humor is just sort of delighting in the harm of others, right? And this whole idea that when something, when you get hit 
in the face with a rake, it's tragedy. But when someone else gets hit in the face with a rake, it's comedy. <laughs> and I, I think it's kind of, maybe that's where comedy starts. I think that's the beginning of understanding humor. But when I read that, I admit reading Heinlein as a teenager is probably, is not a good way to develop one's brain, but I did anyway. And it's not the best takeaway, but I still think there is a lot to that and seeing how humor is attempted. And I think part of it is surprise, but there's an equal part of it is anticipation. But I did want to get back to a point that, Eric, what was the name of that article of you need to be smart to enjoy? Is Rick and Morty as smart as its fans think it is? Right. I think there's this thing that happens in the science fiction world where from the outside, people tend to think that science fiction fans are smarter than average. And internally, I think science fiction fans think they are smarter than average. And it's been my observation that there is really no truth to the latter. <laughs> Despite the fact that, Eric, have you ever played D&D? No. Dungeons and Dragons, Mark, I believe you probably have. I think we've played together. So each character has these six traits. Strength, intelligence, charisma, wisdom, dexterity, and endurance. And people were asked, all right, if you had to give yourself these own your features on a scale, I guess the highest is 18 and probably the lowest technically is three, but you know, generally it tends to be down around eight. It's three dice, three six-sided dice rolled. And people would assign themselves, like me as a human being, not my character in the game, and science fiction and fantasy fans tend to be pretty honest on most things, but they always gave themselves a really high intelligence in a way that <laughs> I, I found to be unsurprising and sort of funny. So I don't think we're going to solve the whole philosophy of humor. What kind of humor is Rick and Morty doing? And is it, you know, I was thinking, again, it's, it's almost absurdist because it's so anything can come from anywhere. And I don't know how much I actually laugh at it as opposed to just thinking that was clever. I appreciate that. That's more in line with the way I think I appreciate humor in general, or maybe that's just what sticks with you after the moment. You sort of feel a laugh at the time and remember your ongoing achiness if it's just a constant barrage of laughter. I don't feel like that after a Rick and Morty episode, but I really do like, wow, that was really something. I'm seeing if I can be reminded. I'm just looking up to see what the internet has to say about the funniest moments in Rick and Morty. This was not the funniest moment, but the last episode I watched that I actually had to go back and show it to Drew because he had missed Like He was sitting there, but he was working. And then I was like, nope, you have to watch this because I laughed out loud. Was one of those silly, stupid moments. It was in the Story Train episode when the conductor gets pushed into a different reality somehow, but he's still kind of in the old reality. And his torso comes off and he just spins and all of the blood is flying around the entire restaurant with like kids watching. I laughed out loud at that. And it was just stupid, right? So, you know, I kind of tend to agree with this, this article that the scientific elements on there are enough that I can understand them. So I don't think it's necessarily like a philosophical scientific humor necessarily. I don't know a ton about either one and I get the references. So that's why I'm thinking it's more of a story arc driven success and that the comedy itself is now, see, now I'm all confused about what comedy is and why it's funny, but I don't think it's necessarily because it's smart, although it is smart. It is. And Mark, insofar as it's absurd, I feel like it can go there whenever it wants. And it can go to whatever meta state it needs to if that's the joke it's making that week. And I feel like, yeah, the plot train was the most extreme example, but 
the episode One Crew Over the Cuckoo's Morty, right, was about getting a, a heist together. And it was all about Morty not getting his own Netflix show. So he would keep doing hijinks with Rick. And it was playing off all the tropes about getting a crew together to do a job. And it was clearly so much a commentary on both that formula of show as well as the idea of how to get a show made in a way that it's kind of inside baseball and in a way that we can't even appreciate because that maybe is just the creator's experience with dealing with networks in a way that most of us won't have any experience, but we can sure appreciate. And so sometimes they play it totally straight and we're just inside their universe. And sometimes we step out of it a little bit and sometimes we step out of it all the way or and we accept it. We've been totally trained to be prepared for any kind of show that they're willing to give us that week. And maybe, how do you guys feel about those interdimensional cable ones? They stopped doing it, but it was just, you know, an improv, which is an absurd. But did you enjoy those? Hit or miss for me. Like some of them, I would laugh at the absurdity of it. Other times I'd be like, maybe some editing here. <laughs> it didn't quite always do it for me. <laughs> I love that episode, that first one, which I just rewatched. And the amount, just the fact that it was improv and that they comment on it, like, wow, TV is looser. It's more, it seems more improvised. And, and then, yes, hearing this interview, like, that is exactly how they made it is they just, the various writers would throw out ideas to Justin Roiland and he would just improv some stupid thing based on it. And some of them were awful and some of them were brilliant and some of them were so awful that they were brilliant. And that's what they then sent to animators. Wait a second. Wait a second. Mark liked the improv episode. <laughs> Edited improv. Mm. <laughs> Made into tiny little chunks. <laughs> All right. It was so well done. There's nothing I want more than a plumbus right now. So the episode season four, when this is one example of what I think is funny about it. Rick gets really upset because somebody uses his toilet and he goes after this person and it turns into this kind of commentary on how maybe Rick's problem is really that he just doesn't have any real friends. That episode took turns I was not expecting, but also was just about something absolutely ridiculous. And it went back by the end of it. You think it's going to go somewhere like a lot more meaningful than it does. And then by the end of it, it goes right back to the fact that he's just pissed that somebody took his toilet, right? The way that it can juxtapose two opposing things in that way is, I think, one of the brilliant things that it does pretty consistently. I felt like a lot of season four episodes had these really elaborate, the most obvious being this uh, one about snakes learning time travel. Right. Where it's like it's like a play within a play. Like they present this whole movie. Another great one was the picture. It's actually the I just rewatched this. The episode title has something about Atlantis going because Rick and Morty are Rick and Morty just go to Atlantis and they don't show their adventures there at all. It's what's happening at the Citadel of Ricks, one of the things that had been set up in the mythology. And it's, you know, this whole playlet about the politics and the dystopian character of this very classed society of all different versions of Morty and different versions of Ricks. And that spread over 20 minutes or the snakes learning time travel and having a whole Terminator rise of the machines, snake machines thing against them, which is really about five minutes. I don't even know. It could be even be three minutes, but like just so much production value and storytelling pushed into like, this is the way that they can make the show go on forever is to have to basically almost treat it like an anthology show of telling 
the inside scoop of like the history of bird person and his people or what, you know, whatever angle they take, they can take reverse giraffe and make a whole show about him. By the way, Mark, that episode, the Rick Lantis mix up, that is why solar opposites will never be as clever because as long as it happens first on Rick and Morty, it will never be that clever on solar opposites. The episode, Terry and Corvo steal a bear where we have the main characters doing something in the background of the human terrarium. I was like, eh, seen it already. Well, that's funny because that, that's something that comes up in that podcast is they have a hard time on Rick and Morty talking about things that South Park hasn't already done episodes on. In South Park, they're always, it's a uh, Dick Van Dyke show. Oh, there's nothing new under the sun. All right, what's the worst episode? There's a right answer. Go. I don't know. You know what? I don't think there's a bad episode. I think that there are just episodes I kind of forgot about, which is why I can't tell you what my worst is. That's exactly my problem. Yeah. I think it's rewatching seasons where they start to bubble up. I find Get Swifty very hard to rewatch. Hmm. I have good memories of that, but I didn't rewatch it for this time. So I don't know. I like the premise. I like the idea. I was surprised in, you know, I found this latest season so consistently strong. And of course, I've seen that whole thing recently, whereas the other seasons, I just, you know, went back and watched select episodes that I remember being standouts that I was surprised. I read a bad review of, which is the one where Rick has impregnated a planet. Yep. Children of Mort. Yes. And I read a pretty bad review of it. And it didn't really bother me at the time. Like, I liked the idea of the various main story beats. But this reviewer was saying just how it reduces everybody's motivations to being so overly simplistic that, you know, throughout the whole episode, it's the family's going camping. And throughout the whole episode, Morty is wanting to play video games instead of going camping. And Jerry is wanting to actually go camping. And Summer is wanting to take drugs. And so they sort of reduce the characters to these single motivations and then do some kind of silly stuff with that. And this uh, reviewer was so disappointed, but it, it would not have occurred me to be that disappointed and say, oh, the other episodes were doing so well on the character arcs and their complexity. And this one just, you know, reduced them to caricature and they're, you know, have regressed to their season one status. Maybe I'm just not critical enough to have a, a worse episode. I'm with you, Mark. There's actually, there's a Collider article about ranking all of them. Well, this is at the point where they had 36 episodes and ranking them based on that. So what's the worst one on the Collider? The first one, the pilot episode. I can see that. It has been a little hard if you want to get somebody new involved in it. It seems like you, if it's serial, of course you want to show them the first episode. So it's disappointing that that one is a little off-putting. Yeah. I mean, even me, like in the first couple episodes, right, I was enjoying it, but I wasn't hooked. And there were a couple times when <laughs> early on before we knew we were going to do this as an episode for Pretty Much Pop, where my husband was like, want to watch another Rick and Morty? And I was like, no, I want to watch something else. And he's like, gosh, why do you hate it so much? I'm like, I don't hate it. I just don't want to watch it all the time. Right. Whereas by, I'd say halfway through season two, I was in. I was like, let's keep going. And we got through season three, no problem. I didn't laugh as much at season four. Now, I don't know if it's because we were just trying to push through, but I feel like season three, for me, was probably my highlight. Brian, what do you think? I I feel like it's just progressed through all of them, but I'm not totally sure. Yeah, I as I kind of look at the list of all four seasons, genius episodes in all four seasons, for sure. It's it's better than we deserve, for me to even say, you know, pick out your least favorite. 
I mean, compare that to my most favorite of a terrible show. I mean, not that I would watch 40 episodes of a show I didn't like, so it's hard to make that judgment. But I think I have done that. (laughs) Well, maybe I've done that for this podcast. (laughs) That's possible. But I think it has held up extremely well. And it helps that there's only 10 episodes and it helps that it's been over seven years now, right? I mean, they've been able to take their time and not have to churn out episodes the way that The Simpsons has had to. And yeah, it's no wonder that that show isn't any good anymore. I mean, they've done it all. Not only they've done it all three times, they've done it all so many times. So we'll see. We'll we'll have to check in after season eight and see how we're doing with with Rick and Morty. There are definitely some... You know, even as I say that I found season four the most impressive and it's sort of that it, I just appreciate the world building and things that's gone on. And since I, it had been so long since I saw season three, by the time I got to season four, like I just didn't even remember this whole is Beth a clone thing. Like, so that the last episode of season four, like had very little resonance to me because I just didn't remember (laughs) that Mm -hmm. callback at all. That's maybe why it's always better to watch everything. In one many season glut or, you know, catch up again. But stuff like the Cronenberg thing of the something has gone so terribly wrong that we're not going to fix it. We're just going to go to a parallel world. Like that is such a genius idea and so recontextualizes everything in the show that you can kind of only do it once. I mean, once it's established, you can keep playing with it. But like it is a stroke of genius, a simple stroke. It's one of the reasons I don't watch this show in bits and pieces of the way I do other shows. I don't even know how many times I've been through The Office, but I, I always turned it on during lunch, and I'll watch however much of it I need to to finish my lunch, and then I turn it off, and I'll pick it up next time. This is one I definitely want to start an episode at the beginning and watch it all the way through. So it does require a little bit more work to watch the show, maybe because it is genius, Mark, that I have to see everything to appreciate that genius, even though I've seen it before. And I have only seen season four well, I see, saw the first half of it twice, but the second half only once. So I'm sure I'll see something new and interesting on the second time through, and maybe I'll have a new appreciation, or maybe I won't like it as much. Who knows? It has reminded me that animation, it does offer so many more options, not just for storylines, but freedom, whether it's keeping the actors because everybody can find a time to get into the studio at some point, or the fact that you can let your imagination absolutely run wild as long as you have an animator who's willing to go there with you. So it actually did make me excited. Kind of like, you know, when we watched our, our, you know, our Korean media episode and I was like, now I'm interested in learning more about Korean media. Same here. Now I'm like, all right, I'll watch some more animation. Why not? Well, let's wrap up here. We would love, of course, to hear from you folks. You can reach out to us through our website, mark at prettymuchpop.com, I know is a functioning address, and let us know uh, what other things you want us to cover. We'll talk more about uh, you know, some stuff related to this, the animation and things in the after show here. Go to patreon.com slash prettymuchpop to become an ongoing supporter. Thanks, everybody. Have a good weekend, listeners. I don't know when you're listening to this. I'm going to have a good weekend. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 